Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, which heads away from Hong Kong via a Hong Kong journalist to his 45,000-kilometre trip from Canada to the tip of South America and a search for his Mennonite identity. So do join us on this journey this week. Cameron Dewick is a finance journalist who goes on great adventures and he'll be talking at this year's Hong Kong International Literary Festival about his book, Menomoto, which means a Mennonite on a motorbike, a journey across the Americas in search of my Mennonite identity. That journey takes him both to the warmth of his community and to some dark places. I've kind of lived my life split between two worlds, between being a writer covering financial news and also just doing financial writing for corporates. And the other side of my life has been sort of dedicated to these crazy adventures that I write about. I guess the two biggest ones, the first one was in 2009. I sailed a boat through the Northwest Passage or the top of Canada through the Canadian Arctic. That was to research how Arctic societies, Arctic communities were adapting to climate change and how climate change was impacting them. And so it was, I've always kind of taken this model where I like to do adventure travel to kind of remote places in order to tell the stories of fringe societies. So that one was looking at the fringe society in the Arctic. And that was quite an old boat or a character um, boat of some sort? Yeah, it was, it was old, <laughs> not old in a romantic sense, just old in a ra kind of a worn out way. Uh, <laughs> um, it was an old boat. It was what I could afford at the time. And yeah, it was a 40-year-old boat. I like to say uh, in, in Chinese culture, obviously, the f number four is not great luck. And I had a 40-year-old boat and there was four of us that sailed for four <laughs> months and four days. <laughs> and we came out of it alive. Uh, and then I kind of started getting into motorcycles. Drove across China on a motorcycle um, with two other friends, three of us, Cana three Canadian guys. We bought motorcycles in Beijing, drove them all the way to Kashgar, and then sold them. As I remember it, and I might, this may have been romanticized a little bit, but the way I remember it is that we sold the motorcycles open outcry, meaning, you know, we were yelling for sale, for sale. And one of us, one of the three of us spoke Chinese properly. And we sold the motorcycles next to a guy selling donkey meat. And then with the cash, flew back to Hong Kong. So that was a great adventure. And then my most recent one, which has produced the book Manamoto, I drove a motorcycle from Canada. So I grew up in central Canada, Manitoba. Capital of Manitoba is Winnipeg. And it's kind of the flat, boring bit of Canada right in the middle. And I drove a motorcycle from there to the tip of South America. And I believe it was 19 countries that I drove through to research my Mennonite culture. And so we, I ended up covering about 45,000 kilometers on that trip. When did you first come to Hong Kong? I came to Hong Kong in 2005 from London. I'd been living in Singapore previously, working as a journalist, working for Reuters in Singapore. I quit my job at Reuters to go sailing. So I sailed from, from Southeast Asia to Europe. It took me about a year. I ended up from Europe going on to North sailing across the Atlantic to North America. And I just kind of took a, took a year off sailing an adventure and ended up back in London and spent about, uh, I think it was six to nine months in London. Didn't find it quite to my, my liking. It just didn't seem to fit for me. And so I really missed Asia. So I thought I'd give Hong Kong a try. Now in Menomoto, a journey across the Americas in search of my Mennonite identity. You write very well, sir. Um, and Thank you. what I enjoy is that the, the people become very real to me on your travels. And what I also enjoy are your Canadian relatives and your Mennonite relatives, and they're all seeing you off. 
and uh, your aunt uh, making sure you've got oranges and yeah. homemade cookies with extra butter <laughs> and uh, your uncles are rather sceptically looking at your motorbike. Yes. Yeah, that was an amazing... So this is the the opening of the book, really, and, and the, it was the opening of the journey. Sitting around a campfire at the Mennonite landing site in Manitoba where my ancestors landed in 1874 from Russia. Mennonite culture, we're Germanic Dutch people, but been chased around Europe due to religious persecution for several hundred years. And so that's what saw us being in Russia in the 1800s and fleeing from there to Canada. And so my great grandfather came as a nine-year-old boy in 1874 and landed on the banks of the Red River. Red River connects up with the Mississippi and it's sort of a really big river in central Canada. And They landed on the banks of the Red River and there's now a monument there and, and that's where I decided to begin my journey. And in order to begin my journey, I invited all my aunts and uncles and cousins and you know Mennonites tend to have big families so there was a lot of people and built a big bonfire and as you said the the aunties all brought home baked goods and we had a you know sitting around the on the fire drinking coffee and eating eating great snacks and telling these stories about Mennonite culture and the diaspora and the transnational nature of Mennonite culture and always moving in search of land and in search of separation from society. Religious freedom would be a very gentle way of saying it. I think the Mennonites take it a little bit further, perhaps a little bit too far sometimes, really always trying to put some distance between them and the rest of the world. And this is what's caused Mennonites to just travel and, and to, to move, keep moving and moving and moving, fleeing government control of their schools. Mennonites have always insisted on running their own schools and all this. So that campfire on the banks of the Red River was was uh, was exactly where my great grandfather stepped ashore uh, in 1874. And here we were sitting around a fire, telling stories and and connecting the dots. And I was already hearing Pete, you know, my uncles and aunties saying, "Oh yeah, we've got that great cousin who lives in Belize," and so and so moved on to Paraguay. And I was furiously taking notes and. And, you know, asking for phone numbers and and uh, starting to kind of stitch this journey ahead of me and um, had this beautiful night on the banks of the Red River. And then the next morning they were all gone and I woke up and, and jumped on my motorcycle and started heading south. Yeah, so you stayed in the tent that night and, and you were going to be staying in your tent on plenty of further nights. Now, yes. one of the things that you do describe is that you travel through 19 countries. You also, um, when you first, and it's like any journey like that, I think you start off with straight lines and then those straight lines become detours along the way. And you ended up traveling 45,000 kilometers. Yeah, so 45,000 kilometers, that's uh, just over once around the equator. So it's an awfully long way. It looks a lot shorter on a map. <laughs> now, it was eight months. Two of those, you were um, had a friend who yes. traveled with you. Six months of that, of course, you were going to these various Mennonite communities and you had your travels along the way. It's, it's interesting because the main thrust of this book is, is you experiencing this Mennonite culture throughout South America, but also looking or searching for your own Mennonite identity or perhaps retracing your roots. Tell me a little bit more about that. Sure. It was a combination of, a, this was a motorcycle journey I'd often had in my mind that I wanted to make. And the Mennonite thing began as kind of an excuse to be go on this long journey, but very quickly it became the driving force of the journey. I was sort of focused on this idea of the Mennonites that had come from Russia. So Mennonite is a fairly niche culture, I guess, in some ways, but it's actually quite a broad spectrum of conservatism. 
And there's also Mennonites that have come from Switzerland. We're related to the Amish. The Amish split off from the Mennonites. And so what I really wanted to do was research the Mennonites that had come from Russia at a similar time that my family had come across from Russia in 1874. And most of the Mennonites that live in Central and South America are actually from that group or that sect, as however you want to term it. We seem to have been sort of the most radical, most cankerous Mennonites that there were, and we kept moving. And so it was this amazing journey where I was driving through these countries and spending all this time alone on a motorcycle, sometimes weeks at a time camping in ravines and on beaches and in the desert and in forests and all alone on my motorcycle. And then I would sort of pull into a Mennonite community and I would be surrounded by the smells and the foods and the language and the spirit of the people I grew up with. And my often I thought of my grandmother. I would be sleeping and the, the Mennonites are very hospitable. They invited me in, gave me a bed to sleep. And there was more than once when I'd be, you know, cuddled up underneath a quilt and inhaled deeply. And I'd, you know, I don't know if it's the laundry soap's the same or if it's just the love of the grandmothers that launder the quilts. But I often would lay in a bed somewhere in Belize or Mexico or Paraguay or wherever I was and and inhale deeply and go, wow, this could be, this reminds me of staying at my grandmother's house, which was an incredible thing. So even though I was in a foreign land, in a strange place, meeting people I'd never met before, but I felt this deep sense of familiarity and sense of connection with these people. And then I would again leave the community after a few weeks and be back on the road and alone on a motorcycle. And I often said, there's only room for one mind in a helmet. So you have a lot of time to think by yourself. So I didn't spend a few weeks riding across another country or until the next community, alone with my thoughts and processing all that I'd taken in. In order to rediscover my culture, in order to search for identity, I left Canada. I left my Mennonite community when I was around 20, 21 years old, around then. And I've lived overseas. I lived in the U.S. for quite a few years, Chicago, New York, and then Singapore and London. And, and so you kind of uh, lose touch a little bit with, I guess, your, your home roots. And also, I think I, I had maybe thought that I had enough distance, having experienced foreign cultures and having lived in foreign countries and all, you know, being a curious person and, and watching these foreign countries, I wanted to apply that slight kind of arm's length critique to my own culture. In hindsight, I don't know if that's possible because I think the emotions came into play much more strongly, much more quickly than I, and prejudices and, and memories and stuff. But that was sort of my goal was this idea that, well, I've been traveling around the world. I've been going to all these interesting places, meeting interesting people. I want to go back and apply that curiosity to my own culture. I'm talking with Cameron Duick, the author of Menemoto, A Journey Across the Americas in Search of My Mennonite Identity. I think what comes across in the book is exactly that, is that you are very clear about what that you're describing now with the, the grandmother's love and the smells that you knew and, and there's something very at home for you about that but as a 2021 year old you're also keen to leave and discover other things you also describe your embarrassment particularly as a as a young man or as a kid about the traditional clothes that are worn and also that there was a among your generation was a tendency not to want to learn the or speak the is it you say platitude Okay, so the the sort of Germanic language spoken. But you still had that. You still spoke a rusty version of that. And I presume that that then got well oiled as you were traveling through South America. (laughs) 
It got well-oiled, but it certainly alerted everybody that I met that although Sorplotich is not a language that many people speak, and if I arrived in a <clears throat> Mennonite community, a colony, they, they tend to call their communities colonies, uh, if I arrived in a colony and would sort of announce myself, you know, I'd pull in on a motorcycle, mm. which are not in conservative Mennonite communities are not acceptable modes of transportation. And you're uh, what they would regard as a Weltmensch. Yes, yeah, a Weltmensch, yeah. a world, person of the world, yeah. <laughs> and I would pull in and I would speak Plotich to them. I'd greet them in Plotich. And I think there was a mixture of shock, horror, and bemusement because clearly I was a Mennonite because I could recite all the names and the, the, the towns I'd been to and they could tell that I, I had some understanding of what uh, what we were dealing with but my plot teach uh was pretty bad and also i mean the dialect varies so they could tell it's probably from canada and you know my appearance was not that of a typical mennonite arriving all dressed in black on a motorcycle heavily laden and covered with mud from three or four countries prior and so people were quite curious overwhelmingly they were warm and welcoming after uh, an initial sort of wariness but even while i stayed with the community for a while, and rightly so, there was always a little bit of a, I think, a slight level of suspicion. Uh, and I can only imagine coming in as an outsider would have been even more difficult. I mean, here, often I would encounter people who who, who had a brother working in the same, you know, uh, welding shop as my brother in southern Manitoba, or they knew my father, or, um, I mean, because the Mennonite community, the transnational Mennonite community across all these different countries is still very much connected by intermarriage, by church connections, by, you know, newsletters and newspapers and prayer chains and things like this. So... I was never what's, a complete what's a prayer chain. A prayer chain. A prayer chain is if your family requires prayer for something, whether there's an illness or a, an accident or something that happens, you will then get on the phone and call a list of numbers and tell these people, please pray for this family, and then they'll call other people. It has a very good intent, a very wholesome intent, but it also serves as an unofficial news system. And so there's curiosity mixed with sincere concern. Now, as you travelled, of course, um, you're travelling through these different uh, countries and you're describing, you know, let's just say on the, uh, from an aesthetic perspective that the traditional dress worn by Mennonites varies uh, depending on, yes. on the country. And within your own community in Manitoba, it's actually a lot less traditional yes. from that perspective. So I like to describe Mennonites in terms of the Jewish community. We're, we're completely unrelated to the Jewish community in, in, in religion and, and that. But in terms of... If somebody says they're Jewish, that could mean that their last name is Rosenthal and they're a Wall Street banker. Or it could mean that they live in a strictly Hasidic community and dressed in a traditional way or they live in a kibbutz. I mean, Jewish is a broad term. It relates to culture. It relates to religion. It relates to, a, a, to an immigration story. Saying I'm Mennonite is the same as that. So I grew up, we had a car. Uh, we had a radio in the it house. It was a turkey farm. Wasn't yeah, it? I grew yeah. up on a turkey farm. Yeah. Grew up in turkey farm in the Canadian prairies. We had a we had a car. We had a radio. We didn't have a TV. That was considered too uh, worldly. And we went to a church-run school. And we're quite sheltered. We were actively discouraged from interacting with the community outside of our church community. However, on the other end of the spectrum, there are Mennonites who do not use automobiles. They do not use any motorized vehicles at all. I met Mennonites on this journey who refused to paint their houses. 
they left their houses raw wood because they considered that the protective value of paint was actually a bit of a falsehood and really painting your house was more about pride. And they wanted to avoid the pride of painting their house and so they just left it raw wood. So that's obviously the other extreme. And so saying you're Mennonite, there's a cultural aspect to it. There's a language, there's a migratory story, an immigration story, depending where your family came from in Europe and in which which century. And there's obviously a very strong religious aspect to it. And it's all, all of it is sort of centered around this religious aspect. How are you regarded back home? I mean, you're the exotic one who went to Hong Kong, among others, but, but in terms of also your Mennonite aspects. It's hard to know. I, I've never asked anybody how they regard me at home, but I think there's a grudging interest and respect, perhaps. Uh, there's an acknowledgement that I've left the faith and left the community in that sense, but they're, they're slightly bemused and are amused that I'm the one researching my roots. That's the, I, I know my father has expressed surprise at this. My father's a, you know extremely pious man, a founder of our church that I grew up in, very religious man. And he finds it quite odd that I'm the one that's dug into our family history because he's like, well, you know, you left the community. What? Why are you interested in this? So I think yeah, I, I'm definitely the one that left. I mean, it's becoming more common now, uh, certainly with younger generations leaving the community. I guess when I left, uh, kind of in the early early 90s, late 80s kind of period of time, it was less common. Most of my school friends are still there or have, have remained within the extended community in southern Manitoba in some way. But um, I think there's a – I think I like to think that there's a little bit of respect in the in the effort I've put into – digging into it, even though they acknowledge and are aware that I've I've decided to kind of forge my own path in life. Can you give me a bit of bad plot ditch? No, I kind of, kind of am a plot ditch reader. It's not a goat. Well, two of am a spatter and dot plot ditch. And I performed over am a reader and plot ditch. And shoal have am a English reader. And choik have a magmal plot ditch and that means? Uh, just in school, we spoke English and church. Sometimes we spoke German and uh, that I speak Plattisch, but poorly. What sort of motorbike did you have? I had a Kawasaki KLR650. Anybody that's into motorcycles will know immediately that's a very simple, single-cylinder, a rather rough bike, but known for its uh, durability. And as I explained to my uncles before I left, they were looking at my motorcycle and stuff, and... And I was explaining to him, single-cylinder, carburetor, no fuel injection. And the bike served me very well. I mean, some of your photographs that you've been sharing and also are in the book, I mean, you're, you've got every kind of tra- terrain. It's sort of like desert, mountains. Yeah, it was amazing. It was this journey that, I mean, I crisscrossed the continents. I, I, I can't remember the number now. I think it was five or eight times that I crossed between Pacific and Atlantic. Obviously, in Central America, that's a lot less distance than South America. But I really zigzagged. I did not take the most direct route. Yeah, up into the Andes, went to Machu Picchu, drove across Sala de Uni in, in Bolivia, the massive salt flats, loaded the bike in Panama, loaded the bike onto a sailing catamaran and sailed across the Caribbean to Colombia. It was a heck of an adventure. And just the camping, you know, especially in South America, I did a lot of wild camping. I would kind of ride until I was getting tired, and I'd find a little shop and buy a few tomatoes, and I carried a little bit of food along, a bit of pasta, and I had a camping stove and stuff, and, and of course, there's good red wine for cheap in South America, so I'd pick <laughs> up a bottle of cheap red somewhere, and and uh, and I just camp- I camped in soybean fields and 
Brazil. I just pulled off the road beside the road, slept in ditches, camp, setting up my camp. And my kind of my rule was if I can't see other people, they can't see me. So I would sort of drive into the woods or, or into a ravine somewhere. And sometimes I would kind of I'd put my bike up on a stand and I'd stand up on the seat to get a good look around. <laughs> if I couldn't see anyone, I figured oh, no one else can see me then either. <laughs> and uh, so I did a lot of wild camping and that was a beautiful thing because being on a motorcycle, first of all, traveling on a motorcycle is a, it's a great way of seeing a place because you're completely exposed to the elements around you. You know, you drive through a little village in the mountains and, and you, the kids are screaming and yelling at you and you can hear that and, and you're kind of weaving around them and you can smell the cooking fires at five o'clock, you know, as the family start getting their fires going and their cooking going, you can smell the dishes, you know, the smell of the food and, and you, you experience the elements, you get cold, you get wet, you get hot and, and you, you hear everything, you smell everything, yet you can still cover huge distances. You can cover hundreds of kilometers in a day. So it's just this, amazing way to travel and then you can camp carry your camping gear and i would camp in these amazing spots and you know just build a fire somewhere and i felt like a a real king when i'd be sitting next to my fire after uh you know having knocked out whatever it was a couple hundred kilometers and crossed a mountain range or whatever it was and i'd sit there next to my fire and the fire you know, off the reflectors of the bike and I'd have my little camp stove and make a little one pot pasta meal and be <laughs> sipping from my bottle of cheap red wine I'd bought somewhere in a gas station somewhere along the way. And I felt like a king. I just, it was, the, those are some of the most glorious moments of the trip. Now, the one area that you came, it was actually a very dark account that you give that, that has continued after you finished the book. Um, you've stayed in touch with these families and with this community. So tell me about that. Yeah, that was in Bolivia. So the story has been reported quite widely by international media since kind of 2009, 2010, when it first broke. There's, in some places, it's been referred to as the ghost rapes of Bolivia. I think that's what uh, Vice called their story on it. The story, as it was reported in international media, was that the Mennonites had developed a magic spray and a, a drug that they could administer via a spray into a home where they would put make everybody fall asleep and then they would go in and rape the women and children in these homes. And this is how the story has sort of been reported and everywhere. And, and I read about this before I went on my journey and was just aghast at it and just to think that this was happening. I mean, you know, hundred there was over a hundred people raped and it kind of took place over several years. And when I got there and I kind of started digging into it, and of course, to really find the truth in a story like this is it's like trying to catch eels, you know? You have a very lowly educated community where they've been told to think and believe certain things and been told to dismiss other thoughts from their minds. So when you ask them, what did, how did you experience this? They will often recite what they were told was how they experienced it, even if that wasn't actually how they experienced it. So I found this out very quickly when I started interviewing people in the communities in Bolivia about this case. When I was speaking to people, I, you know, I wasn't getting even their own true experience of it. I was, you know, getting what they, what they felt they should be saying. And so instead of trying to kind of dig into this and find the, the real truth, I felt I wanted to rather dig in and see what it told me about my culture. And over a course of a couple of weeks of talking to people, both, you know, the, some of the victim families and the, the people that were in prison, their family, I went and visited the men in prison in Palmasola prison in Bolivia and talking to interpreters that had worked in the court and stuff. And it became 
first of all, they, they were very open about the fact that they've been paying the judges off. In Bolivia, it's quite a common thing. If you want a conviction, you, have, you need to pay. But of course, you know, it, it doesn't, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure that, that that sort of corrupts justice a little bit. And also, there was no denying that the men... So who had been paying the judges? The Mennonites had been... So what I have determined, and, and, I, and I'm quite confident in this, is that there was a group of eight to ten men spread through a, a few different Mennonite communities in the area east of Santa Cruz. There's several Mennonite communities, about 50 to 80,000 Mennonites, depending on how you count them. Um, but this huge Mennonite community east of Santa Cruz. In these communities, there was about 8, 10, 12 men who were arrested by vigilantes. Now, all of these men were deeply unpopular in the communities. They were troublemakers, to make to use the term that I heard. Not necessarily you know, super nefarious, but some of them had reported their neighbors over tax discrepancies. They had questioned the church authority. One of them was a youth, a young guy who just caught kissing girls in the apple orchard kind of thing, like pretty, pretty naive stuff. And there had been a long-running issue of incest in the communities. Women had been whispering about this for a long time, that the men and their families were taking advantage of the women and the families. And, and this I got from various sources, and this is fairly broadly accepted, that there was a broad problem of incest. Some of the men thought to be abusing their daughters and the neighbor's daughters, and you know, some of the, some of the men that were at fault of sexual abuse were very powerful, wealthy men in the communities. So what happened was that they went after some of the least popular men in the community and rounded them up and arrested them. And thereby said, there, we caught the perpetrators of all of this. One of the men was mentally handicapped. All of the men were unpopular, kind of on the fringes of the communities, not the pillars of the community. Perhaps it had needed help from the community in the past, and they were easy victims, easy, easy people to round up. So what happened was they, the, the wealthy men and the powerful men created vigilantes. They created gangs of vigilantes and went around and arrested these guys. And they tortured them. They tortured them until one of them died. He was hung from a tree by his arms uh, and beaten. Uh, and this, uh, the, the brother-in-law of this man who died told me this. And they then paid the courts off in order to not get convicted for this murder. But they con continued on with arresting these different various uh, unpopular characters within the community. And some of them they hooked up to electricity. Uh, they beat them with, with uh, sticks and chains. And they locked them up into, in steel containers, con like, uh, shipping containers in the Bolivian heat. Uh, some of them they, picked, they locked them up in pig crates and tortured them until they started confessing that indeed they had been using a magic spray. This is, this magic spray is not a term I came up with. This is something that they re kept referring to it as. That you could spray in the face of a bull and the bull becomes as meek as a kitten. And then these men would go and spray it into the screen windows of these houses. And by spraying it into the window of a house uh, would knock out the entire house and then go in and drape the women. And so this was what I dug into, and it was just amazing because the wounds of these sexual crimes had never healed, because instead of cleaning out the wounds and, and bandaging them and allowing these people to, allowing the women to tell the truth, instead, more lies were slathered on top of those wounds. And so this, this, I spent several weeks there, and it was just a heartbreaking, depressing, dark, horrible story. No one would allow me to speak to the victims, the women, 
Mennonite culture has this very strong sense of don't challenge authority, don't challenge mm. the church, don't challenge, challenge church leaders, and this idea of separatism. Stay away from society, live a quiet life, and don't cause trouble. Hipsters love this sort of thing, you know, living on a farm in the middle of nowhere and growing your own corn or whatever. But if you do this with an entire society, generation after generation, and it becomes so ingrained that you should not disturb this system, you should not question the system, there's a very dark side to it. And that's sort of the story that I un uncovered. Now, since I was in Bolivia and visited these men in prison, I've been in contact with them. Several of them have been released. But it was just a really depressing thing because here I was on this journey to learn more about my culture, to connect my identity and to find out more about my Mennonite identity. And here I ran into the story that was just, that was very much based on our identity and based on our culture, this idea of, you know, silence, of peacefulness, of, of don't rock the boat, uh, pay attention to the, you know, uh, obey the authority of the church. And it just went to such a dark, dark place. When I was there in Bolivia, hearing these stories and, and digging into this idea of how what is so central to our culture, this idea of being separate and living in the, living in the countryside and living on a farm and how this had been corrupted to such a horrible extent. And I looked at that and I went, like, those are not my people. That's, <laughs> I want nothing to do with that part of my culture. But I can't deny that, you know, there's a link, but still, that's not the part of Mennonite I want to claim. There are other Mennonites that I met who were who were industrious and generous, and that, that's those are the bits I want. And, and and we all know that this is a this is an exercise in perception. But you have to sometimes confront the bits of your cultural identity that aren't very pretty, and you don't need to embrace them, but you have to at least acknowledge that those are in some way, whether I like to admit it or not, they are in some way linked to me. My thanks to Cameron Dewick, talking there on his book, Menomoto, a journey across the Americas in search of my Mennonite identity. Cameron will be talking about his book and travels on Saturday, November the 14th at this year's Hong Kong International Literary Festival. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.